Hi guys, welcome to Coffee, Crime, and Storytime. I'm Danielle, and I'm so glad you're here with me. Uh, this is a daunting undertaking, and I am really appreciative you're coming along for the adventure. I hope to make it worth your while. Uh, when I first started kicking around the idea, there was a lot of self-doubt, but two of my utmost truths are, number one, I love a good story, and two, I am the queen of talking to myself, so doing the dishes, normal nine to five, feeding the pets. So I figured why not combine those two weird things and tell you guys some stories instead. Maybe it'll make me look a little less crazy, probably not, but it's worth a shot. One of the other problems was simply telling you hi for the first time. What was I gonna say? How am I gonna deliver it? But that got me thinking, what could be the worst possible way to say hello? When I thought about that, a bunch of different cases and stories came to mind that we could talk about. Uh, but I kept coming back to this one. It just stuck out. Um, it's terrible, you know, from the jump, but it just gets worse and worse. It's one part scary ghost story to tell in the dark kind of thing and one part murder and mayhem and the worst of we as a species. So grab your favorite beverage, sit back and enjoy while I tell you the story of Daniel LaPlante. To talk about Daniel LaPlante, we almost have to gloss over his childhood. And this is tough because there were many incidents in his childhood that, in my opinion, of course, which doesn't count for much, but here we are, shaped him. Uh, but because he was a minor, uh, those records are sealed, we have few facts to go on. Suffice to say, Daniel was born in 1970 in Townsend, Massachusetts. He suffered a myriad of forms of abuse, predominantly at the hands of his own father, ranging from physical, emotional, and even sexual. His school life was rife with struggles as well. Uh, he'd been diagnosed with dyslexia, and he had very few friendships. During school, uh, he was actually referred to a psychiatrist, and this should have been a turning point for him. But this dude was almost doomed from the word go. His own psychiatrist sexually abused him during their sessions. Once again, a figure that should have been there to help took advantage of him. During this time, he was also diagnosed with hyperactivity disorder on top of his dyslexia, and he began to act out in more ways. He started stealing, small-time break-ins around the age of 15, but he didn't just take things. Sometimes he'd actually leave things or move the owner's items around just enough so they knew someone had been there. I don't know about you, but that seems somehow creepier to me than just breaking in. It's almost a mind game of sorts. And for someone who probably felt that they hadn't had a lot of control over things, that was probably a really heady feeling. It was around the age of 16, so 1986, that the events that border on almost urban legend took place. He somehow got a phone number from one of the local houses that belonged to the Bowen family, a dad and two daughters. It's speculated that he might have gained this information during a break-in, but again, 
not 100% sure on that information. The daughters were Tina, who was 15, and Karen, who was 9. He called them up, saying he got their number from a school buddy. Our Danny boy was the original catfish, you know, saying he was a super attractive guy, he was blonde, he was a jock, he was super smart. Everything a young girl probably dreams of, right? After a few phone calls, Tina and Daniel arranged a date. Uh, imagine her dismay when the polar opposite arrived at her door. Dark, greasy hair, plain, unkempt, uh, and awkward Daniel. Tina went on the date as she had agreed, but she returned home shortly after calling it quits. Unfortunately, during that very short time, Tina had given Daniel enough info that he hadn't had before. She and Karen's mom had passed from cancer, and they only had their dad left. In later stories, Tina would say he'd made her uncomfortable. He'd seemed hyper-focused on asking questions about her mom's passing, how she felt about it, how much she endured, um, just really wanting to know basically how sad it made her feel. When she returned home, she figured she'd never see him again. Uh, boy, was she wrong. Now, because it's the 80s, Tina and her sister did something I myself remember doing at that time. Uh, they performed a seance trying to contact their deceased mother. Uh, granted, I wasn't looking for my mom, but I do remember plenty of sleepovers that involved a Ouija board and very scared whispers. But later that night, in their case, the girls heard knocking against their bedroom wall. They thought it had worked. They were speaking to their mom. They asked questions, and the spirit seemed to knock in response, you know, akin to the Fox Sisters or the Bell Witch kind of thing. This went on for a few nights, to the point where the sisters couldn't sleep at all anymore for all the knocking. And then it was more than knocking. They'd find items tossed around their rooms. Furniture would be moved. The happiness of thinking they had talked to their mom changed to think that they were being haunted by something evil. Their dad, in true dad fashion, thought they were making it up, you know, doing it themselves, acting out in light of the death of their mother. But then one evening, the knocking was no longer coming from the walls, but from the basement. What the girls discovered was a message written in blood. It said, I'm in your room. Come and find me. Well, I noped the hell out of there. That's exactly what they did, too. And they went to a neighbor's house while they called their dad and they waited for their dad to show up. And the dad's response was to put them into counseling to help them cope. Now, not a bad idea in the first place, but again, he still thought it was them simply acting out. Over the next few weeks, the events continued. Other messages such as, I'm back, find me if you can, uh, family pictures pinned to the walls with a knife, and all of it yielded the same results. Uh, frightened daughters, a disbelieving dad. But finally, this time with that last message, when Frank checked out the home, he found it in even worse condition than the girls had described. And they had said one thing, and it was far beyond what they had even told him. 
And then in Tina's room, Frank found a message in blood on the walls that said, marry me. Um, frightening enough, but even more so was what was on the other side of the room. A figure in a wedding dress with a hatchet in his hands. Danny LaPlante stood in a wig and makeup and must have given Frank the fright of his life. LaPlante managed to escape after some tussle and Frank called the police. He told them it seemed like he'd almost just disappeared into the walls. The police determined the messages had been written in ketchup and began their search of the house. Soon they discovered a cupboard built into one of the walls in Tina's room and behind that cupboard was a crawl space. And in that crawl space was, you guessed it, Daniel LaPlante. After he'd been arrested and removed, they kept up the search, finding that the hiding space led to tunnels all throughout the house, as well as peepholes for observation. Talk about frightening. Um, that's even worse than a ghost in your house, personally, if you ask me. LaPlante was sent to a juvenile facility, and that should have been the end of him, right? Well, that's where you'd be wrong. Do you need a refill? You might consider it before we get to the next part. Uh, this is where our story turns from almost lore to gruesome humanity. Uh, fair warning, there's some graphic stuff ahead, so proceed with caution. You see, LaPlante was released from the facility in October of 87. He went immediately back to burglary, and during one of them he actually managed to obtain two handguns for his theft. In December that same year, he committed the acts he is most known for, the murders of the Gustafsson family. Andrew Gustafsson arrived home to a sight more horrific than anyone could think of. He found his wife, Priscilla, face down in their bed. She had been shot multiple times after having been raped by Daniel LaPlante. She was 33 years old, and at the time of her death, she had been pregnant with their third child. Andrew's five-year-old son, William, was discovered drowned in the upstairs bathroom, and his eight-year-old daughter, Abigail, had met the same fate in the downstairs bathroom. The murderer was quickly linked to LaPlante, who had skipped town and broken into a woman's home and kidnapped her and taken her with her vehicle. Thankfully for her, she managed to escape and LaPlante had been spotted. Within 48 hours, he was discovered in a dumpster. Hair, belonging to sweet little Abigail Gustafson, was found in his sock. Thanks to that evidence and other key points, he was sentenced to three life sentences for the murders of Priscilla, Abigail, and William. In 2017, he appealed for a lighter sentence, claiming he was sorry and he was reformed. Yeah. Do you think that's the case? Me? No. And it's a comfort to know that his appeal was denied and LaPlante will spend the rest of his life behind bars. Sadly, Andrew passed away in 2014, um, so he did not 
get to hear that the final appeal was denied, but you have to imagine it's some kind of comfort. Ironically, the story at the beginning did not come to light until after the murders. So, how's that for hello? I hope you enjoyed listening as much as I enjoyed sharing it with you. I appreciate your patience while I learn along the way. I promise to get better. Um, Do you have a story you want to share with me? Or do you have a story you want to talk about? Feel free to send it to me at coffeecrimestorytime at gmail.com. Thanks for hanging with me today. And until next time.